every lawsuit needs a villain. We aim to end the use of race and ethnicity in college admissions. Your race and your ethnicity should not be used to help you or harm you in your life's endeavors. But that leads me to believe that he's somebody who is tone deaf when it comes to the inequality that still exists in this country along lines of race. For decades, over multiple decisions, the Supreme Court has been clear. The U.S. Constitution allows colleges to take race into account when they craft their incoming classes. And yet, race-conscious admissions policies continue to face attacks. Today on Uncommon Law, we'll meet the man who has perhaps done more than any other in recent memory fighting to end the use of race in America's public policies. Will he be successful in convincing today's solidly conservative high court to end affirmative action in education? Welcome to part three of our four-part series on affirmative action. I'm your host, Matthew Schwartz, and this is Uncommon Law. The courts were okay with using race in college admissions, but not everyone was. Shortly after the Supreme Court approved the University of Michigan's law school policies, some states took matters into their own hands. The elites don't see the harm when working people are passed over for diversity. Everyone. In 2006, Michigan voters passed a referendum banning affirmative action. Tell the politicians equal treatment is your civil right. Yes, on proposal two. They joined California voters who had passed a similar referendum a decade earlier. Proposition 209, it bans what it calls racial and gender preferences. Sometimes a state legislature would ban it. Republicans in the Oklahoma House voted to ban affirmative action yesterday. Sometimes racial preferences would fall by executive order. Or he signed this bill called the One Florida Law, which outlawed affirmative action. All told, the use of affirmative action in college admissions is now banned in nine states. And even though the Supreme Court has repeatedly said schools can take race into account to try to build a diverse class, affirmative action continues to face legal challenges, spearheaded, in many cases, by one man. Edward Bloom is this man Edward who has Bloom brought many cases that has launched that at least a dozen lawsuits against race-based Can you explain to our viewers who Ed Blum is? Bloom and what has been behind some of the most high-profile Supreme Court cases of the last decade, including what seems like his one-man mission to end affirmative action in the United States as we know it. Edward Bloom. This guy's name comes up a lot. How you feel about Ed Bloom is a kind of Rorschach test for how you feel about affirmative action, about whether the government should ever consider race, even about whether our constitutional system of democracy is working as it should. So I took a flight to Portland, Maine, drove two hours up the coast to meet the man who, depending on who you listen to, is either fighting for the restoration of the original principles of the civil rights movement or single-handedly impeding America's progress toward racial justice. Fairness Is it Bloom or Bloom? Bloom. Bloom. Okay. Ed Bloom isn't a lawyer. I am not a lawyer. You're just interested in these matters. I have found that 
Uh, there are many ways to influence public policy in our nation's institutions. Some uh, choose advocacy. Uh, some choose uh, litigation. I have chosen litigation. Ed Bloom is a businessman who made a small fortune consulting about municipal bonds. About 30 years ago, he turned his attention to race in American life when he was running for Congress and realized how racially segregated and gerrymandered various congressional districts were. During the course of knocking on doors and trying to follow a map of who is in my district and who is not in my district, I realized that voters who were on one side of the street that happened to be African-American were drawn into the district, yet voters on the other side of the street, a garden variety Houston residential street who were Hispanic were drawn into a Hispanic district. A block north or south from there, where there may have been an apartment complex with mostly white voters, those voters were put into a, a white congressional district. Those districts were drawn that way in order to increase the power of minority voters, whose political will might otherwise have been diluted. But that's not what Ed Bloom took from his experience. So now we've got you know, multiracial, multi-ethnic neighborhoods being split apart to create racially homogenous voting districts. That was really the beginning of my learning about how government separates people based on race and treats them differently by race. And that is in great tension with what the civil rights movement was all about. Bloom lost the election, but in 1993, the Supreme Court ruled that this kind of race-conscious gerrymandering violated the Equal Protection Clause. So Bloom organized litigation to challenge most of Texas's congressional districts, got the Supreme Court to hear his case, and won. From there, he set his sights on ending the use of any racial preferences throughout American society. There are people who become deeply engaged in different projects, whether it's, I don't know, volunteering at the SBCA or environmental issues, social issues. For some reason, I am dedicated to ending racial classifications and preferences in our nation's public policies. I believe that these racial classifications and preferences weakened the bonds that hold us together as a multi-ethnic, multi-racial nation. Bloom spends hours every day on his efforts. You might say ending affirmative action is something of a hobby, except Bloom considers it much more than that. It's not a hobby. Um, I work long hours. I'm up uh, 4.30 every morning, and I work until about 4.30 in the afternoon. So it's a passion of yours. It is a passion, yeah. How much of your own money have you spent over the decades in trying to eliminate race from admissions? I couldn't venture a number. Um, here, I think, is a better question. Because of my advocacy in this policy arena, I basically was forced out of the investment business. Here's the story. In the mid-90s, 
the city of Houston had an affirmative action contracting program. That steers city contracts to companies run by women or minorities. Bloom formed an organization to challenge that program. I led a group of people to amend the charter of the city of Houston. They sponsored Proposition A and tried to make it sound as if it were a way to end discrimination without ever mentioning the words affirmative action. It was a messy fight. Ultimately, Proposition A, which would have banned affirmative action, failed. We were unsuccessful in Houston. The problem was that the mayor of Houston at the time, Bill Lanier, was a big supporter of that program. And we haven't been able to independently verify this, but Bloom says that right before the vote, Lanier made a phone call that would impact the course of Bloom's life. He called my boss in New York and said if the company I worked for ever wanted to underwrite another municipal bond for the city of Houston, they would get rid of Edward Bloom. So, shortly after the election, I was presented with a choice. I could stop doing everything. Couldn't help with lawsuits. Couldn't even write a letter to the newspaper on a topic having nothing to do with race or ethnicity. Basically, I was silenced. And I left that firm. I left a job that was very lucrative. So how can I quantify how much I have spent? I, I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that um, my income from 1997, 1998, when I was forced out of the firm, has been one half of what I was making before. Bloom says that over the years, he's probably spent a couple hundred thousand dollars of his own money on litigation expenses. But all of the cases he's filed over the past two decades have been funded by donors, both individuals and foundations, mostly conservatives, with, he says, a few old-school liberals thrown in. As you no doubt know, he was also behind the voting rights case that struck down Section 5, Shelby County versus Holder. Listeners who have heard the first two episodes of the series will recognize this voice. That's Ted Shaw. He's a University of North Carolina law professor and former president of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund. And he's talking about a case that was decided in 2013, also spearheaded by Bloom. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act had required predominantly Southern states with a history of discrimination to check with the federal government before they made any changes to their election laws. The Supreme Court took the case and by a vote of five to four, struck that section down, agreeing with Ed Bloom. And I, for one, cannot simply conclude that people like him are not pursuing an agenda, which is to end all race-conscious efforts to address race inequality. Around the same time, Bloom was also leading a challenge to the use of race in college admissions. The U.S. Supreme Court today returns to the issue of affirmative action in higher education. Over the, the last case was, in fact, spearheaded by a man named Edward Bloom, a former stockbroker. In Texas, by law, public universities had to admit anyone who graduated in the top 10 percent of their high school class. 
But that's not what bothered Bloom. What bothered Bloom was that, to fill out the rest of the incoming class, about a quarter of the spots, the University of Texas announced in 2006 that it would consider an applicant's race as one factor among many. That day was the beginning of Fisher versus the University of Texas. I didn't know Abigail Fisher was going to be the plaintiff, but I knew that that made the University of Texas vulnerable, that it had a bullseye on its back because of that. In this video, Bloom makes an open appeal for Texas students to join his cause against affirmative action. Bloom set up a website called utnotfair.org, which solicited potential applicants to serve as plaintiff. I encourage all high school students who have been rejected from UT to visit at utnotfair.org. Tell us your story. Bloom looked for years for the perfect face for his challenge against the University of Texas. To participate in a lawsuit like the ones we have filed, these students must be committed, and they must be courageous, and they must be of good heart. They must not appear to be prejudiced. We do not want to provide a platform for young people to describe their theories about higher education admission systems. It's a very laborious process to find kids who meet those three standards. But after years of searching, Bloom couldn't find anyone he deemed worthy. So he ended up just going with the daughter of a friend of his, Abigail Fisher, who, graduating in the top 12% of her class, just missed getting into UT. But it's really great to have a voice in this and, and be This able is to from a promotional video with Fisher that Bloom's organization released in 2014. You know, I hope that the court rules that UT can't use race in their admissions anymore. The Supreme Court in Fisher ultimately reaffirmed the Michigan case, holding that UT could continue to use race as one of many factors in admissions. But the court also made it clear that the high legal standard of strict scrutiny applies, and that schools have to be prepared to demonstrate in court that race is not the main factor in who gets in. The court says, we're tightening it up. We're tightening up what a compelling interest is. We're tightening strict scrutiny up. University of Oregon law professor Garrett Epps. We're telling courts, you'd better take a very close look at what the colleges tell you, because they may be secretly using race as something more than a plus. And so each time the issue came before the court, it became harder to apply that law to existing programs. Bloom didn't win the case. The University of Texas didn't have to change its policies. Abigail Fisher didn't get into the school. But after Fisher, schools were on notice that they had better be careful if they decide to consider the race of a prospective student. I can assure you that the prospect of being sued, particularly being sued by a national advocacy group like the Project for Fair Representation, is very much on the minds of every admission chairman I know of, and I have been an admission chairman. We got to do things by the book. And sometimes, you know, staff or other members of the committee will say, well, what about if we do this? And you're like, 
first of all, for God's sake, don't put that in an email. And no, we're not doing it because if we do, you know, Ed Blom is going to come in here and, and we'll be in court for the next five years. Ed Bloom, of course, wasn't done. Even while the Fisher case was still wending its way through the courts, Bloom continued finding plaintiffs for more lawsuits, one against Harvard, the oldest private university in the country, and one against the University of North Carolina, the oldest public university. He created an organization called Students for Fair Admissions. He set up more websites soliciting potential plaintiffs. UNC, not fair, Harvard, not fair. By the time Students for Fair Admissions filed their lawsuit, they had dozens of rejected applicants on their membership rolls. And Bloom personally vetted these potential plaintiffs, looking for the best they must be courageous of the best. And of good heart. I have flown all over the country, meeting each of these students face-to-face and meeting their parents often face-to-face. Parents have questions. Parents are nervous that their kids will be harassed on social media. This will cost them future job opportunities, future admissions to perhaps law school or medical school or postgraduate education. So it was necessary for me to meet each of these kids face-to-face. A lawsuit brought by Asian American students claims Harvard's affirmative action policy sidelines them in favor of less qualified minorities. Harvard and and they argue the admissions system discriminated against Asian American students. The Harvard lawsuit alleges that Harvard lowers the bar, the academic achievement bar, for three racial groups, whites, Hispanics, and African Americans and raises the bar for Asian Americans. The University of North Carolina, we allege that UNC raises the bar for whites and Asians and lowers it for African Americans and Hispanics. All the lower courts to hear this challenge over the past several years had ruled against students for fair admissions. Now it's up to the justices of the Supreme Court who will have the final say. Coming next week, the conclusion to our four-part series about affirmative action in education. Will Ed Bloom convince the solidly conservative court to overturn decades of precedent and rule that colleges can no longer consider race in admissions? Is diversity still a compelling interest? Plus, I'll have a heart-to-heart with Ed Bloom. Is yours a simplistic vision of equality, one that doesn't take into account the history of racism, of minorities being kept down over decades, hundreds of years. Instead of looking at them through a racial lens, let's look at them and help them out a little bit through a socioeconomic lens. That's next week on Uncommon Law. Uncommon Law is hosted and produced by me, Matthew Schwartz. I also mixed and sound designed this episode. My editor, Josh Block, is the executive producer for video and podcasts here at Bloomberg Industry Group. Thanks to Jonathan Hortarte for our cover art, and an additional thank you to Tom Taylor and Cheska Antonelli. For more coverage of affirmative action and the Supreme Court, go to news.bloomberglaw.com. If you like Uncommon Law, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend. It really helps. See you next time.
The difference between missed opportunity and actionable intelligence. For in-house attorneys who strive to provide superior counsel and strategic advice, Bloomberg Law offers an unmatched platform of analytics tools and business intelligence. All to help improve productivity, mitigate risk, and inform decision-making. For the comprehensive platform that helps you work smarter and faster, the difference is Bloomberg Law.